Today's episode, World War II Codebreaking at Bletchley Park. Hello, and welcome to Military History Inside Out, brought to you by War Scholar and located at warscholar.org. We talk about military history from ancient times to modern and everything in between. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Jan Slimming, author of Codebreaker Girls, A Secret Life at Bletchley Park, published March 3rd, 2021 by Pen and Sword Military. Thank you for speaking with me. Thank you for inviting me. So first, um, well, I see from the bio that uh, the book is about uh, your mother's adventures in, in this event. Um, tell me, what, what inspired you to, um, to go ahead and write this book about it? Um, well, I had always known that my mother worked at Bletchley Park during the war. I went there when I was six. And, um, but it was always quiet in our house. Nobody ever talked anything about the war. My father was a prisoner of war in Singapore mm. and, um, he didn't want to speak about his experiences. And there were only two little girls in the household. And I guess they thought, I think it might have been different if there was a boy. Um, my father would have spoken more about his experiences, but my mother, all I knew was that she worked at when we asked her, we finally did say to her, well, where did you, where were you in the war? And she said, I worked at Bletchley Park. Well, where was that? And the other side of London. So we, we never really found anything more about their, her from, from that, those days. Um, apart from eventually she did start to say that she was a filing clerk. Um, anyway, we, we, we did go and visit on that day and that story's in the book. And, um, but it wasn't really until 2008, after she had died in 2006, when um, Dr. Sue Black did a lot of fundraising in order to try and save this mansion at Bletchley Park. Mm -hmm. And so my sister and I were quite um, excited by this because my mother had tried to be involved um, from the mid-1990s to um, the time when she died really or until the time when my father died he died in 2001 mm. he couldn't drive so she couldn't go up there so um but he did take her once or twice um so after we died and we found after she died um we found all these um papers and photographs and that made us think well you know we really need to be looking into this in more detail anyway um i had moved to america in 2000 and so it was quite difficult to do you know, to do the research together. And um, so um, we were we were just, um, we just put it in a box basically until we had another opportunity to find it. Mm -hmm. um, in the meantime, my, my sister had come across somebody that was a Far Eastern prisoner of war who lived near her. And so she was quite excited about looking at my father's tapes. Mm -hmm. And about six months later, I heard on the radio um, about an American code breaker and she was born in Baltimore. She worked in Washington and she lived in Atlanta, which is where I am. So I was really excited about actually finding somebody who was a co-breaker who was talking about what she actually did. Whereas my mother never said anything, hardly mm -hmm. little snippets of information as it turns out. And um, so I tracked her down and uh, she was a professor or a retired professor at Georgia State University, and she lived six miles from me. So um, it was through her that I actually 
got the emotion really of how um, how it felt to be a co-breaker and how it, it felt to hold that secret so long um, because it was 50 years and you know what what was that like to keep a secret for 50 years and never tell your parents never tell your children and not even tell your husband you weren't even allowed to tell anybody mm-hmm. so she gave me all her feelings and the emotion of doing that but from an American viewpoint she just encouraged me to go back to England go to Bletchley Park research find out as much as you can and and right from the beginning it was really difficult to find out anything about my mother so I just had to read and read and read lots of books mm-hmm. um, which I did and um, eventually I um, started to think well you know I, I, I can write my mother's story based on what was actually a place because not many people knew you know the full story of people who worked there and mm. there were a lot of people there um over ten thousand people and 75 percent of them were women mm. and some were in the forces many were not many were civilians who were working there and, uh, so that's what inspired me to actually put pen to paper. Mm. And not only that, I worked in publishing for um, 25 years. So I always thought somewhere there would be a book in me, mm. in me, but I never knew what to write about. And then suddenly it was all there. Yeah, yeah it was right there. <laughs> yeah. All the time it was right there, actually. So, yeah. So um, what's the uh, talk about the focus of the book? How do you break it down? What do you um, talk about? You know, because it's fairly lengthy. I think it's over 300 pages. Yes, it is 300 pages. So it's in three parts. And um, the first part is um, really about her life growing up. Um, and then the second part is to do with what sh- the mechanics of, and the organization of Bletchley. And then the third part is what happened to her after the war. Hmm. And um, it was always a surprise to us, you know, why her? Why, why was she chosen to go to this amazing place where it was professors were running around and you know these really intelligent intellectual people and how does she fit into that so i asked the questions how was she chosen why was she chosen and what did she do so um i tried to answer all of those in the book and then the last part was what happened to her afterwards Mm -hmm. and um, it was quite a fascinating journey which um and somebody along the way had um, when i gave it gave it to them to read he said well i want it to be your memoir and i'm thinking my memoir i don't want it to be my memoir i'm not ready to the beans on <laughs> my life yet so and that was the question he asked he said well when did you first hear about bletchley park and it was when i was six mm-hmm. so from that time i was able to conjure up all these memories that had been buried for so long that now all started to make sense based on the snippets of information that my mother had given and the research that I had done, which it all seemed to fit together. It was itself like a big puzzle. So um, it was it was quite an exciting time to actually discover all these things. And, and then sometimes I would, you know, get on a roll with really writing about you know parts of my childhood which um I, I just thought all started to make sense eventually and um yeah it was it it was a lot it was a longer book actually because the american lady um she, she was called janice martin benario 
Mm-hmm. She was one of the greatest generation. She died, unfortunately, in December. Mm-hmm. And so she's on that list of um, people. And um, so when she gave me her story and I wrote my mother's story, I weaved the two stories together. So it kind of went between America and England quite often. And um, But when I sent it to the publisher, they said, no, sorry, once it was two books. So I had to unweave it, which um, so it would have been even longer. But um, but that's I, basically I ran it along the lines of Janice's book, Who Was the Wave in America, mm-hmm. and um, fitted all my mother's story around that. So she was born in London mm-hmm. into a poor family. Um, she had quite a good schooling in terms of what they had in those days and back in the 1920s. And she worked in the co-op, which in terms of America was a little bit like working in J.C. Penney, probably. Okay. And she worked in a haberdashery and for a couple of weeks. But then they found that she was really quite good with figures. And so they moved her up to the accounts department. And she was there for quite a few years. Um, and even two years into the war, she was still working there. But then eventually um, all single women were called up. They had to, they had to go and work somewhere to do with the war. And so she went along to the um, labor exchange and they sent her for an interview to an office in London, which was actually Devonshire Devonshire House. And that was the place where they said, well, okay, you'll do a night. We need to, you need to go to Bletchley tomorrow. And so they gave her a, um, a letter which said, catch the 1040 train from Euston to Bletchley. And then she was, taken by a car into this mansion behind and um, told that she was going to be training on um, top secret work. She had to sign the Official Secrets Act. She was not to tell anybody where she was, not even her parents, and not to talk about the work that she was training to do. So, I'm speaking with Jan Slimming, author of Codebreaker Girls. You can find more information about her work on her Facebook page, author Jane Slimming. If you like this episode so far, please like it and consider subscribing. All of my links can be heard at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. I, I imagine it, it must be strange for all these people, especially like you say, mostly women, to go back home and say, oh, yeah, I can't tell you I've been eight hours a day, you know, every day. You know, He never went home. She didn't, they were billeted. Nobody went home. Um, They either had in the, um, I don't think anybody ever slept in the mansion. There may may have been a few people right at the beginning, but most people were either um, billeted in families' homes for the war effort. They were told they were having people that were working within Bletchley Park and they weren't to ask questions either. It was government work, I think is all they said. And um, there was also there also was a, a hostel um, that was converted into like a barracks for so many people. Oh, probably by the time she was there, um, they had the barracks. I don't think she actually stayed for much time in the barracks. She was actually billeted in a place called Leighton Buzzard, and um, she would catch the train, which is one stop up on the train line. But no, she she only went home um, probably once a month. Um, and by then, of course, they were deep in the war. 
she would just say it was war work. They all said the same and nobody asked any questions. Um, and that's how it was. They, they kind of knew. Um, I guess it was like signing up for the waves, like when you go into the military, when, you, when you're doing something like that, you, you know that they're doing something important and they won't be allowed to talk about it. And I'm pretty sure that that was how, um, when she said she was going off to work for the government, that they knew they weren't supposed to ask questions. And so they never knew what she did. Do you, were they trained in any kind of uh, um, using guns or any, anything to defend themselves in case there was some kind of breach or issue? No, they they didn't have anything like that. So she was a civilian, so they weren't trained in anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, they did have around some of the buildings that some of the walls were reinforced in case of bombs came over. But it was such a secret location that um, outside of London, that everything was done to kind of divert suspicion even to the point where um, it was a radio um, signal station at one point called Station X, um, which they had to move um, because um, they didn't want anybody to be finding them around there. And so they moved it to another place, not not too far away. Um, but um, they still had teleprinters and they most of the messages were coming through through the um, what they call the SLU, which was the special liaison unit, and and they would bring messages into the park from the listening stations, which were quite often um, around the coast of England, and people were picking up the messages, and so that was like a motorbike delivery dispatch service, and um, that was it. It was a really well-run organisation by the time she was there because they've been working on it since 1941. And um, it was built to process intercepted messages. Um, and they, by then they were coming in, you know, thousands a day. So um, there was a lot of work to be done. And, uh, yeah, it was... It, it, they, they each had their own little compartmentalised bit of work to do. And they weren't allowed to even to talk about it with different departments, only within their own department. She didn't know your father at the time then, so he was a prisoner and she was doing her work and they met after the war? Or? No, she did know him. She met him when she was 16. Hmm. And so by the time she um, went to Bletchley Park, um, she was um, 26. So she'd known my father 10 years and um, before he went off on his travels, um, which was another secret mission in 19, late in 1941, um, the Christmas before actually they got engaged. So they were engaged on Christmas Eve, 1940. And um, so, yeah, they, they did know each other. So, um, so he went off and um, again, it was a secret mission. So he wasn't, allowed to say where he was going or what he was doing and um, I think they last heard from him um, 1941 the end of 1941 and then they didn't hear from him again for at least another 15 or 16 months so it was a a long time to not know where he was and you know more so for his parents of course because he was 27 Mm -hmm. and uh, you know a young man um, but yes, she did know him, and um, 
One of the things that we, we've always asked was because she actually ended up working on Japanese coats mm. was did the people that she was employed by, did they know that my father was a prisoner of war and was she there to actually try and work out where he was? Um, one probably never know, but um, it was quite interesting that she got moved off of German codes to work on Japanese. She no, couldn't speak a word of Japanese, but, um, but that's what she was moved on to. And so that was quite an interesting little bit of research. And I think we still need to look further into that, too. Um, that'll probably be a different book. So I was going to ask him, so it sounds like you don't have an answer yet about what special skills she learned or developed. Um, I was going to ask about language, but you said no Japanese. Um, yeah, well, she what they did was they, they used to, um, you didn't need to have a language in order to break the codes. You just had to know the process of working out the different patterns. And um, so and most of the time the messages were sent in, um, probably were sent in English, um, but English split into code and so quite often they would be working with lots of different parts of the alphabet that were all jumbled up so um, one of the things I did ask her this is one of the snippets of information I got out of her I said to her what did you actually do when you were at Bletchley Park and she'd gone off the filing thing by now but she said we I, I got I'll do it with my hands she said we, we got this paper we got these strips of paper and she went like that and she laid them out on pretended to lay them out on the desk mm. and she said I had to work out what was different and so she's comparing all these strips of paper with lots of different letters on that didn't mean anything and she had to work out um, what was different between these different pieces of paper and so I said well what did it say and she said, I don't know, it was all gobbledygook. <laughs> but what they were looking for were patterns. And one of, one of the things, it depends on which kind of code and cipher they were working on. Um, it depended on how it was laid out. X's were quite a giveaway and spaces were a giveaway. Um, different positions of the letters were also um, an area where they could look for clues. And between various groups of people, they were actually able to work out some of the codes. And that was all done manually. So, um, but of course there was the bomb machine, um, which Alan Turing devised. And with these manual techniques, I mean, sometimes these things could take weeks and weeks to actually work out all the different, different ways of working out 26 times 26. And then depending on how many wheels were in the cipher, um, it could take months and months and sometimes years. So what the bomb machine did was speeded up that process. And um, but she was never involved in, in the bomb machines. Most of hers code breaking was pen and pencil. And she also said that um, people used to come into her office and they would ask for certain parts of the information. So what they used to do when they did eventually work out the code, which, which could take weeks and months, they would collect the information from the message um, and categorize it into at least eight different ways hmm. so that um, if they needed a little bit of information, they would, um, it would 
they could if they had a bit of information they would could just go to that file and, and pull out the information it was i'm pretty sure it was all numbered and and then it would lead on into other things and it quite often it would help in the code breaking because they they'd find another message where the code had been broken and there would be a different type of um a different type of cipher for a different day because quite often the ciphers changed at midnight every every day mm. so quite often they were looking at messages for all of that day but maybe they were two hours sorry two two weeks late so it's um it was just a matter of collecting all the information analyzing it storing it in such a way so that it could be found again and so we all we, we joke about it now, but that was the first Google search engine. <laughs> so did she, um, did she ever meet or bump into fr old friends who she never quite explained how she um, knew them or <laughs> we, it, interestingly enough, I had, um, two aunts that were my mother's friends, you know, like you, you used to call your, I don't think they do it anymore. You call them by their, Christian name or Mr. and Mrs. or something, but um, she had these two aunts that were very close to her. And eventually, as we grew up, yes, we worked together during the war, during the war, and one of them worked at Bletchley Park. They all worked in this store before the war, mm. the co-op it was, the co-op at Tooting Broadway, they all worked. But this other girl, so they were all meeting together, having, you know, tea and talking about the past and the children, what have you. And um, and it turns out that one of them was was at Bletchley um, with my mother. My mother never knew what she was doing, but she she actually was a Typex operator. And the other lady was um, she was in the forces. She was the ATS, which is Territorial Army, mm -hmm. and uh, she she had trained in London in Wimbledon, so not too far from where they lived. He had expected to go into the Wrens, which is obviously, you know, is the equivalent of the waves. But she ended up going to do army signals. Uh, and that was in a place called um, Bow Manor, where they um, trained or uh, had extra training and collected quite a lot of the messages where the intercept intercepting went on. Mm. And, um, and they never knew that she worked there, not until 1996, when um, my parents had their 50th wedding anniversary and they, they were all there and she said yeah i was part of that whole bletchley operation she just was not at bletchley she was at bow manor and she was actually doing the intercepting of the signals along with thousands of others of course mm -hmm. so those she wasn't at bletchley but the other one was and so my mother kind of knew that she was there but um I, she they wouldn't have talked about it very much. The different, they were in different departments. And um, so my, mo my mother had a another group of friends that um, she was in contact with, but we never met them. So um, she got to know people. But so what did she do oh, after the war? What, you know, or what do all these women do after the war is done? And, you know, there's... Well, she um, was just expected to go back and work... Um, back in the store, I suppose, back in, in her job. But but she actually was um, asked to go and work in a different office of the foreign office. And she ended up working for the India office, and um, which she did 
for about two more years and um, she was working with diplomats. She said she used to organise their leave. So people that were going back backwards and forwards to India, she was she was working on their documentation. She probably did something with the Mountbattens. Um, she actually had something to do with Clarence House, which is where the Queen Mother ended up living. And um, but then when the Indi when India went into partition, when it was parted from Pakistan, they um, that office closed. So and it became a royal residence, as far as I can work out. But that's a whole other part of um, research that needs to be done. You, so yeah, so they were just expected to go back and live a normal life, really, which I imagine was quite hard to do. But then everybody was doing it at the end of the war. Yeah, I can imagine she, your your mother had a lot of would have had a lot of stories to uh, you know relating to it, the independence of India and that whole. She must have yes, knew little I things. Know. But again, she never she never divulged any of it. In fact, I never knew about that part of her life until. I found a piece of paper um, in the bottom of a drawer. It looked like a drawer liner. She just put bits of wallpaper or things that stuff to line the drawer. And it was a paper bag. And inside this paper bag was a certificate saying, um, good luck on leaving you know, your job at the India office. And this was, um, it was more towards 1948, I believe, when she actually left it. But the partition was in 1947. And um, so, so she she left, and I, I do vaguely remember my uncle and my mother talking about the India office. But I thought he worked there. I didn't realise my mother worked. Mm -hmm. um, so, so there's quite a few stories that um, you know still need to come out about that. But the most um, interesting research for me about Bletchley was that um, there were so many people that worked there and 75% of the 10,000 people that worked there were, were women and they were almost and, and another thing that recently that just came out was the about the um, uh, the Western Front I think that's what they called it where um, there was a group of people that were actually controlling the war from Bletchley um, based on the information that was being intercepted and analysed um, they actually had a, a group of admirals that were working at Bletchley Park and passing on the information to the commanders, including Eisenhower and um, everybody else that was involved. So I'm curious, what? Uh, so the, the Bletchley Park story, how much of it is about your mom and how much is it about the work that was done there? I would say two thirds of it is about my mother and the part in the middle is technical mm -hmm. and quite difficult to write when you, you're not really sure about, you know, I only started on this history journey um, in 2012. Mm -hmm. I didn't do history at school. I didn't know. Everybody kind of, I have a twin sister and we were both, you know, diverted away from history and math and science. We didn't do any of that. We did English, geography and um you know, cookery business studies actually was was our main thing, and um, so that was that was the direction we were pushed in. And um, and any time we wanted to talk about history, my father did watch some black and white movies on the TV, and they all seemed so awful and depressing. 
with you know guns firing and people dying that we didn't really want to watch them anyway so um but that was his way of reliving the war hmm. and so we we just didn't really know where to start when it came to the history side of things but um after a lot of research it's just fascinating now the whole thing is really fascinating so we are really trying to find out more things about what went on and um all the people that are involved in all these kinds of research projects mm -hmm. and what they have to do to in order to find out the information that's needed you mentioned some of the resources you used for your research already um what else i'm still curious about how you got so much information on your mother since she didn't um talk a lot about it you know did you find records at, at archives or something or to be honest um a lot of it was based on snippets of information that she gave she um she left when she died there was a file of um little bits about bletchley and then this other aunt I've told you about, her daughter also had some information. So we combined the two things. And um, reading other accounts, and I knew she worked in Hut 7. Eventually I found out she worked in Hut 7. And she I, I just had to find out what went on in Hut 7. Well, it turns out there's loads of things that went on in Hut 7 and um, working a Hollerith machine was one of them. But she said she never worked the Hollerith machine. But that was all she said. You know, you'd ask her a question and she'd give you like a two word answer. So we did try to, um, it was just based on a lot more research. And I did get um, a document with her name in it. And I have got to piece together more about that particular department but she was working on diplomatic um, messages with Japanese codes. Mm -hmm. And um, she did say that they did have a, a Japanese kind of translation dictionary because sometimes they had to get the nuances of different things. Uh, and that was just a matter of, you know, looking at the different characters. Um, but I, I really would like to get into um, GCHQ really and go and look at some of the messages and intelligence that was derived from that time but um, I still think a lot of it is under wraps and um, particularly from what happened in Singapore with them um, and you know when thousands of men became and women became prisoners of war and um, apparently Churchill's got quite a lot to answer on that so um, I've, I've heard there's going to be more information coming out in 2025. So we're working towards getting more information on that um, hmm. in the next few years, I suppose. I'm speaking with Jan Slimming, author of Codebreaker Girls. You can find more information about her work on her Facebook page, Author Jan Slimming. If you like this episode so far, please like it and consider subscribing. All of my links can be heard at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. Is Bletchley Park, do they have a lot of information for you or did you, did they let you like tour? I, I don't know what, what kind of facilities yes. they have right now. Um, I, when I first went to Bletchley Park, um, it was, it was being rebuilt and it was in 2014 and there was hoarding up everywhere and you know you just thought well and my mother always said it was a dump she did actually say to me once will you come with me 
and I had three small children. I just moved to America. I said, yes, I will come, but I can't come this year. And then, you know, it turned into four or five years and I never, never went. And, and she always used to say, it's such a dump, dump. I don't know really why you want to come because it literally was falling down. Um, so by after 2008, when Dr. Sue Black raised all this money, to, and I think it was something like four million pounds or something, or maybe even 40, I'm not quite sure exactly the figure, she, they were able to get more grants to rebuild. And by the time I went there in 2014, we could see um, the results of that. And um, but that was in March 2014. And then I went again in May, and it was officially open, all the hoardings down. And it was wonderful. And I, that year, I must have gone back to Bletchley about eight times because I just was absorbing everything about my mother's life. That three and a half years that she was there, that I had no idea what she was doing until that moment where I stepped in there and was able to try and work out what she was doing. Mm-hmm. And then after that, up until, right up until the pandemic, I probably was going two or three times a year. And um, my family would come with me and they, they'd all be run around it within two hours and I'd still be there like at five o'clock. In fact, they quite often had to throw me out because I was just absorbing all the information. And certainly um, right up until it may have been 2018, 2017 or 2018, Letchley could never really tell me about anything about my mother apart from she was on the roll of honor and there was a bit of information on her about on there about her and I put the photograph up about her and then the oral historian just said well I found this form of your mother's and she had gone there in 2000 and filled in a form and actually it actually said what she did do you want me to say what she actually did or do you want people to read the book <laughs> i should say yeah anyway, keep it a secret <laughs> yeah it's a secret so and it actually said on the form and she in her writing what what she did and um and in a in a long way round i had done all my research and had come to that 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 must have been what she was doing just purely from what she said about unfolding these strips of paper and it's officially on the role of honor is what is it called it's um identifying unusual features hmm. so and that was part of um what they had to do in deciphering the messages so so eventually so I, i'd almost written the whole manuscript and then i had to make a few tweaks and changes and then by the time i said the publisher and they wanted a split in half so it's been through a few different um um, manuscripts. It was originally called A Tale of Two Secrets with both of them in there and I had to um, split it. So. Uh, so now we have um, now we have two books and the third book which is on my father which is nothing to do with code breaking it's just his war. He kept a diary. Uh, okay. So what part of all this research was the most enjoyable? Well obviously going back to England I really enjoyed that. Um, I'm very fortunate that um, I had two members in my family that worked for airlines, so I could get backwards and forwards fairly easily, mm. not necessarily quickly, but um, I was able to do that and was able to stay with my sister or other friends. And um, so I definitely enjoyed that. And I, I enjoyed spending time at the National Archives as well in Kew. That's quite um, a, 
quite an amazing place really where you can find all sorts of information and that's where I did find the information of my mother eventually um, after I got this form to say what she did um, but it was it was all written there eventually and, and I, then I just had to in the book I, I fitted it in around the book and it wasn't too hard to do because I'd already done the research I just had to pinpoint her to that direction to that particular point and um so yeah it was um yeah i i enjoyed all of it really even you know talking with um janice martin bonario here in atlanta i like used to like going to see her would go and see her two or three times a year and um so that was in, enjoyable you mentioned you know quite a few things that you came across that obviously were surprising to you but but among all those things what was the most surprising uh thing that you came across either about your mother or just about the work that uh, that was being done there? The most surprising thing um, that I've recently found out about, um, which is actually not in the book, it will probably be in the second book now, was that the, um, the Hollerith punch card system that they used at Bletchley Park to do all the sorting and the analysing in, in a faster method um, was actually based on the punch card system that was developed in the 1800s um, by, I think his name was Jacques or Jean, Jacques Marie Jacquard. So the cloth that we see with the um, the weaved patterns, like it's all the same color, but there's a weaved pattern in it, which is called Jacquard. Mm. He was the first one to develop a punch card system, um, mechanical, of course. Um, and, and that has been quite an amazing thing. I, I never put the two things together. Mm -hmm. And um, that's that technique was used in computers. So that and the fact that I found out what was on the form and the thing about the um, about so many women working. I, I imagine they'd all be walking around in military uniform, but they weren't. It was all pretty much civilian, kind of fairly laid back, really. And um, and I'm sure they, I'm sure they had some great times, um, hmm. but um, that's probably another book somewhere. So what? Um, obviously, there are a lot of questions here that you tried to get an answer for. Maybe some still unanswered. But uh, was there a particular question that was the most difficult for you to? I mean, you did mention finding out what your mother officially did but anything else that uh, you really dug into and either came to a conclusion on or you still would love to know some aspect of it yes i'd like to know um how involved she was in trying to find out where her fiance was or the 18th division and what they were doing and whether there was any influence at all um in what she was doing that would have had some impact on knowing, you know, what was going to happen to all those prisoners of war. One of the, one of the awful things that has come out since, I'm not sure whether since is the right word or not, but certainly what, what we found out in the last four or five years was that all the prisoners of war in anyone, anyone that was held under the Japanese, there was a date in August, I think it was the 23rd of August, 1945, they were all going to be massacred. Mm. And so the atom bomb, as horrible as it was, 
actually saved my father's life huh. because if that hadn't have happened they may well have they all those pow's may well have been murdered and they, they were already digging their trenches and um they probably all would have been shot and pushed in the trenches wow I, yeah. so that was quite a chilling that that was quite a, a chilling revelation but how much they knew about that at Bletchley Park, I, I don't know. And that would be another thing to, to actually find out. What, um, obviously, since this has to do with your family, there's a lot of emotion involved. But is there anything that you'd like to mention that was particularly emotional, either in a positive or negative sense? Um, I guess my mother going through a nervous breakdown afterwards. Mm. Um, growing up, it was almost normal really because she'd always had nervous breakdown and we'd just say oh you know where's mummy now and she'd go away for three months it wasn't at the time it wasn't emotional but when I look back now I just I think my father must have been very very strong in order to deal with her and yet he had his own PTSD issues mm. um so yeah it would I think that part of the book was was quite emotional for me um, in writing it and, and the memory of it coming out and the realization that, yeah, that that's why that happened, why certain things happened. And, um, yeah, I did definitely, de I definitely think that there was something with, um, my, my mother's experience at Bletchley in having to keep that secret and not telling anybody about it. I think it definitely worried her all the time and um and, and i guess it that was the main thing was being um having this weight over her all the time and not being able to talk about it but and certainly when she did start to say a little bit more in the, in the late 90s and and she it, it was like a weight lifted off her and you know and she felt happier about saying the few things that she would say, but she still never gave away completely everything. And, um, and lots of them, even today, still refuse to talk about it because they signed the official secret set. And at that time, it was for life. You know, you weren't supposed to say anything. But, but they are allowed to talk about it now. Was, was your mother she, normally a talkative person and, and she just kept no, quiet about it? she was that. quite quiet, yeah. She, she was, a, as far as I know, I mean... I don't know before the world she might be, but I think she. I think most of the time she was. She was quite a mild mannered person that wouldn't really say very much. But and these these two two friends that would come round, um, they they seemed to be her only main friends. And she had quite a large family. We we had um, a lot of family come round, and then there were neighbours, and they would. And during when she was ill, they would often come round you know, talk with her. But um, what they talked about, I really don't know. Mm. So, um, but they weren't, she wasn't one of these people that would go out chatting and gossiping or anything like that. She, she was quite quiet that way. Mm -hmm. So what, uh, you mentioned a few difficulties in getting the book finished, you know, like breaking it into two. Um, were there any other difficulties in getting it finished or published? Not really. Um, I worked in publishing for 25 years, so I kind of knew the ropes and I knew who to try and go to. I made sure I went to a military publisher of sorts, or at least somebody that was already publishing books on Bletchley. And um, 
I did try one publisher and it looked like something was going to happen. And then he, I used to go to London Book Fair before the pandemic and um, in 2017, no, it must've been 2018. Um, he said, um, oh, well, no, we're not doing those types of books anymore because we've been bought by a Chinese printer. And I thought, oh, okay, well, second choice. So, um, so pen and sword was um, was the next uh, group of people that came up with um, you know the goods and uh, published my books. So mm-hmm. I was happy with that. Okay, and is the the additional books? Are you um like how far along are they in the publication process? Right. Yeah. Um, well, it's uh, all th- the other two are with pen and sword as well, mm-hmm. and. Um, my sister's been working along on my father's book all the way along the line. And um, hers is going to be the third book now. And because I'd already written the first book with both together, I did have the main story. So I've just had to find a little bit more information about American code breaking for the second book. And that manuscript went off last week. And um, that's going to be published in January. And the book about my father will be published in April next year. So both of those are coming next year. And um, and the, the three together will make quite a good story, really, because in the end, um, my mother was working quite a lot with um, Washington mm-hmm. through, secret, through a secret source somehow. She was, they were, they were communicating and Washington used a lot of the research that they did in she did in her department so so that's quite a nice circle in a way so with the release of this book have you had anyone um try to reach out to you and say oh i had family members oh yeah you know yeah um couple actually um one of one of which it turns out to be um almost a long lost cousin hmm. um because his mother um his mother still lives um where I grew up in Mitcham, in, which is Mitcham, Surrey, which is really South London. And um, he's on. he was on a Facebook page that I'm on called Mitcham Memories. And he said, oh, my mother would like that book. How can I get it? You know, and I organized for him to get a signed copy and she got the copy of the book. And then she's a couple of chapters in and she's calling him saying, I know this person, he's, he's your uncle or something like that. And um, and this guy who I was in contact with, he actually lives in Seattle, is a publisher in Seattle mm-hmm. from South London. And um, and it turns out it's my my aunt's ex-husband. And so we that was why we lost contact. In fact, I never knew that uncle. I never knew him. So and so that was one of them. And mm-hmm. then um, some, you know, really. Um, old friends that we've known for 30 or 40 years that you'd never talked about anything to do with Bletchley Park. And they're saying, oh, yes, my aunt and uncle were there. Um, They met there. And um, so we're trying to find out some more information for them about what what they they did. Um, I also run um, a Facebook page called Descendants of Bletchley Park. And we um, pull up information as much as we can um, to you know, lead them in the right direction. Mostly it's to bletchleypark.org, which um, is, has the role of honour. And they, if if they're listed on that page, on that um, 
website, you they can get more information in. And um, so, so we're trying a two-pronged uh, way of getting the information now. And uh, but with the pandemic, of course, they're backed up, so it's kind of taking longer. And um, but yeah, it's it's really fascinating. And um, there's there's I would say there's probably been about ten people that I've had connections with that we never realised that we had that connection. And um, and I'm sure there'll be more. Do you know? So you mentioned 2025 is it as about this Churchill information that's coming out? Does that mean there's also other information dealing with you know the English war effort that's coming I'm out? I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure there is. Um, I think there's. Uh, well, I can't really speak out of turn, but the fact that somebody told me, well, you know, there's going to be more coming out in 2025. Um, um, I feel that um, it's going to be. Um, information that not everybody wants to hear. So I think it's to do with the Japanese, um, the decisions on why they let Singapore fall. I think that's that's going to be. So they let Singapore fall, and um, so that was 1942, and um, concentrated on the European war, which was, you know, probably one or the other because there, there was not enough forces. And Singapore was supposed to be heavily fortified, but it wasn't. So it's quite an interesting. It's a bit like um, Max Hastings was talking about Malta. Mm -hmm. Malta was not quite so far away, and they managed to have a battle to save that. Well, Singapore was, you know, a long, long way, you know, days, weeks sail away. Mm -hmm. Do, Do you know what organization these documents will come from? GCHQ. Okay. And then it will go into the public records. So it's going to be released through the National Archives. Mm-hmm. So. Okay, interesting. So ultimately, so this book, obviously, it touches you know various subjects, but ultimately, what would you like readers to take away from it? Yeah, I was thinking about that. I think the most important thing for me is to ask questions. You know, if you, from a daughter's point of view, who never really got very much information out of her mother ask questions try and find out more and if your parent can't tell you because of things like the official secrets act and this and just at least ask them to write it down so it can be found somewhere mm-hmm. and don't don't leave it till it's too late because you know it's really hard to find out the information and um Fortunately, a, a lot of people are now talking about these stories on oral histories, but, you know, and that's because they're living longer. My mother died when she was 89. My father died when he was 84, whereas now they'd both be in like 103 and 104, I think, mm. 105 and 104. And um, so some people are living longer to tell the tale but unfortunately they don't but I, I'm pretty sure that they would have talked if they would had still been alive the last 10 years they they would have they would definitely have said more so so yeah but I definitely ask the questions and ask them to write things down mm-hmm. yeah I've uh yeah, I put my parents and grandparents in front of a camera and, and individually and said hey tell me about your life and had them go from you know from when they were yeah. little kids up till, you know, the day that, that we were talking. So 
you know. Yeah, no. So they've all done that. Well, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, very, very. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad I actually did ask my father to do his diary. I've got that on tape as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but he did that for me in 1990, so we knew more about his story than um, than my mother's story. Mm-hmm. But uh, so that's all being quite um, a thing to actually find out exactly what she did, and um, and I can't wait to get back to Bletchley Park. So everybody needs to go to Bletchley Park because mm-hmm. um, it all needs. It needs support, so anybody that's going to England, probably not in the near future, but next year, hopefully, um, it's definitely worth a visit, and um, and I hope hope they'll enjoy it. How, how long does it take to get through the whole thing? Is it a half a day? or? I would have at least half a day, yeah. It's a nice cafeteria there, two cafeterias, actually, very absorbing. They do. Um, they have a, a video um, headphones and a video presentation that you can look at. And there's lots of exhibitions that that are always changing. There's there's new things coming up all the time, mm-hmm. and um, you, you just get a really good feel for what's um, what went on there during the war. So. And, and where in it's in London, right? I uh, know it's not. It's um, outside of London. It's northwest London. If you've ever heard of a place called Milton Keynes, it's very close to Milton Keynes. And I would say it's a, maybe an hour's train ride out from Euston, maybe not quite an hour. Mm-hmm. And the train stops at Bletchley. So very easy. And then there's another line that goes up from the um, uh, Olympia, which is where all the exhibition halls are. And that goes straight up to Bletchley as well, but that's a slower line. Euston is the best line to take uh, if you're in London, but it's pretty central to England, I'd say. So during the war, it seems like that location was was fairly isolated, that they could sort of kind of keep, you know, keep watch over what was going on outside of the walls easier. Um, It was definitely isolated. The people there weren't there were only a group of people that were supposed to know the whole picture. Most people didn't know what the other departments were doing, although it wasn't very difficult to work it out, I don't think. They just had, they were all going for the same thing to read the messages. Um, but as they couldn't tell each other what they were doing, it was all very compartmentalized. So. And they knew they couldn't speak outside of, of the walls or the railings or the fence. That's all it was, was just a wire fence, you know, t- about 15 foot high wire fence. And um, and only key people knew, knew in the government what was going on. Now, it was part of the Foreign Office and the Foreign Office was obviously in London and then that also had connections to the Admiralty and the head office of the, the top brass, if you like, at the Admiralty were all in London. Mm-hmm. But they all had connections. They would send people backwards and forwards. Well, one of the key people that would go backwards and forwards from there, I'm just trying to think of the name. I think his name was Admiral Godfrey. His um, personal assistant was what none other than Lieutenant um, Ian Fleming. Mm. So this is where, you know, the James Bond stories all came from. Mm-hmm. And so he was going backwards and forwards to Bletchley Park 
a lot. And so, you know, as a, as a messenger, because there was no, there was a telephone, but they didn't want to, um, they didn't want to send messages by telephone. So they had these kind of secret couriers taking messages backwards and forwards and um, and nobody knew. They said that um, the people around Bletchley kind of knew what was going on because it was something to do with the government and you would have all these people putting people up in their billets. But on the other hand, um, they were told that it was an electrical wiring factory and they were building like factory blocks as well. And so they could get away with that. But um, yeah, the secret never got out, not for years and years and years, um, not till 19, I think it was 1974, when the word actually officially got out. Although David Kahn did write his Co-Breakers book um, in 1967, um, there's one mention of Bletchley Park in there about saying that somebody worked at Bletchley Park, but not what they did. He talks about Room 40, which was the beginning of the um, uh, the, the Foreign Office um, establishment where they were trying to break the Enigma codes. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it, it, nobody ever said anything until, until um, Frederick Winterbottom's book, in, I think it was 1974. And, um, that's, well, well, and that's when I kind of found out a bit more about what my mother did as well. That was another thing, but she wasn't important enough for anybody to be interested. So So I'm fascinated with the, with the idea that she might've seen or met Ian Fleming at some point, possibly. Oh, she did meet him. Yeah. She knew who she, she knew who he was. She was always going backwards and forwards and getting different bits of information. She knew Alan Turing. She knew, um, she knew Welshman and she knew um, to, uh, John Tilton, and he, who was supposed to have been the best, the greatest co-breaker of all time. Oh. And he ended up, just think about this, he ended up being something affiliated to um, the NSA, I think, um, oh. after he was head of GCHQ. And when he retired, he ended up going to live in America and being part of that whole cryptologic museum and the area mm-hmm. in um, Washington, mm-hmm. at, um, Fort Meade. Yeah, there were lots of connections with Brit- British co-breaking and American co-breaking, and it went both ways. So that's why I said my mother was working with America on some of the Japanese things in the end, because Friedman had broken the codes in in America using purple. Mm the purple codes and the machine that he developed to break that. And, um, and so they were able to exchange information and this exchange of information could go on for weeks and weeks before they actually work out the messages. But the great thing about what she was working on was it was an enigma. It was the next, um, the high command codes, which was Lorenz, the the Lorenz codes Mm -hmm. of the German, Mm -hmm. Italian and Japanese high command. But we need to get more information on all of that. Huh, interesting. So it sounds yeah. like there might be an updated edition to this book at some point if you if you do get enough. Uh, yeah, I think it might be a completely different book because I, I think it will be based on... I have to read some of the other books here. There's, there's one called The Emperor's Codes, which I've not really got into, which will tell me more about it. It's written by Michael Smith. And if he's already do, done it, then I'm not going to do it. But I haven't actually read that book because 
it was only really recently that I found out about the um the Japanese connection and I found that more of that out when I was actually um doing the extra research for the American book because mm. I didn't actually spend very much time on American codes but then that's kind of all coming together through through that second but that second book is not really about <laughs> not really about Japanese codes because it's about Janice Martin Bonaria who worked on the German codes so mm. you know but to I have to, I have a word count to keep to. <laughs> yeah. Is there anywhere on the web that people can uh, follow your works? Um, at, at website? Um, yeah, I'm on, um, well, Pen and Sword. I'm on Pen and Sword as Jan Slimming um, under Codebreaker Girls. And I am on Facebook at Jan Slimming Author. And um, I can, uh, uh, I'm on the Casemate. Um, website as well. Casemate is the distributor for Pen and Sword in America. Mm -hmm. And um, Amazon will have an author page there and buy the books. And I am working on a website. So next time I'll have the website. I'll spell your name for listeners and viewers. It's J-A-N and then last name S-L-I-M-M-I-N-G. That's all the questions I have. Do you have any uh, parting thoughts or words? Only that I was really interested in listening to the Max Hastings um, book. It's made me want to go and do stuff on Malta now. Mm -hmm. So um, it's been a, a Malta week, actually, because um, on PBS, they did something on the discoveries of underground Malta. Mm -hmm. um, the Queen, before, well, the Queen, Princess Elizabeth, when she was before she became Queen, lived in Malta, and of course Prince Philip was there as well, so that was a big thing. Mm -hmm. And then last night we were watching um, Andre Bocelli singing from the Opera House, which is in rubble, according to Max Hastings, uh, on the port there in um, in Malta. And it's, it's just made me think, oh, I definitely need to go to Malta and... <laughs> find out more about that area and what yeah. what went on there during the war yeah max hastings book operation pedestal is a really great book it's like i know i need to buy it, it it's really i i was I, I knew it would be good but it was i could not stop reading it <laughs> i couldn't right. put it down it oh. was but good. um but definitely and, and your book is doing great on amazon the ratings are great so definitely yeah readers i've got some really good reviews so i was really pleased about that Oh, yeah, yeah. So um, definitely people should pick that one up as well. So, yeah, thank you for speaking with me. Well, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity. I've really enjoyed it. And um, I hope to be back with book two. Oh, yeah. Book three. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. All right. Okay, thank you. In the next episode, I speak with Rob Brown about his book on being a special forces operator with the SAS and other services. Bullseye the subscribe button to catch that episode. Thank you for listening to Military History Inside Out. If you want more interviews with military historians or daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org and follow me at Warscholar on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, at Chris Alvarez Warscholar on Instagram, and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you want interviews with writers and creative people or daily fiction suggestions, including sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, sign up for my newsletter at fullcontactnerd.com and follow me on Chris Alvarez Full Contact Nerd on YouTube, Chris Alvarez FCN on Facebook and Twitter, Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi on Instagram, and my podcast Full Contact Nerd Interviews. 
If you want interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyandspace.com and follow me at Spacewalks Money Talks on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, Spacewalks MT on Twitter, and my podcast, Technology and Space. Thanks for listening, and I hope to see you again soon.